Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. Today we're going to be looking at verses chapter 7, verses 53 to chapter 8, verse 11, which is known as the story of the woman caught in adultery. And as you're turning to those verses, you may find something weird, depending on what Bible you have. Uh, your Bible may skip over those verses, or it may place the story in the Gospel of Luke, or it may place it at the end of the Gospel of John, or it may put the story in a footnote or a side note, or it may have the verses there, but they're in brackets, or it may just be there and that's that. And we'll talk briefly about why that is in a moment, but before we do, let's read the story. Again, in my Bible, this is chapter eight, or chapter seven, verse fifty-three. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, "Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery." Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this most holy day and for this time in which we open up your word, this means of grace, as we come now to your word and seek to be taught from you, may you open our eyes and ears to your truth. Lord, reveal our sins to us, strengthen our faith, and conform us more and more to the image of your Son, in whose name we ask, amen. Now, before we read that story, again, I had mentioned that depending on what Bible you have, this story may either not be there, or it's somewhere else, or it's in a footnote or a side note or it may be bracketed. And why is that? Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here because you can get deep into the weeds, but I'll just say a few words about why that is. Keep in mind that when this Gospel of John was first penned, there existed the original text, the original copy. However, just having one copy of a book wouldn't work well for multiple churches scattered throughout an area. I mean, imagine if even our little church here tried to share one copy of the Bible. That would be a pain in the rear. So churches made copies of the original and then made copies of copies and then copies of copies of copies. And eventually over time, you have all these numerous copies, these numerous manuscripts. 
And then eventually, like with the Gospel of John, they would lose the originals. But we have copies and copies of copies. Now, it's important to understand that when we talk about the Bible being directly inspired and thus inerrant, we're talking about those original autographs, those original copies. They were free of error. However, as these copies are being made, errors can creep in. I mean, imagine if you were to take a Bible home today, somebody else's Bible, and tried to make a copy of it, line by line. I actually, at one point in my life, was going to write out the whole Bible by hand. Of course, I only got to like Genesis 5, I think. <laughs> but, uh, you know, even in doing that, you make mistakes, unintentionally sometimes. Sometimes you misspell words. Sometimes you duplicate words. Sometimes as your eyes travel from one line to another, you may skip over a word. And then, what if the source that you're working from isn't a very good copy? Like it's aged, it's worn out. Even with computers today, it's still possible to make mistakes when we write. Just ask any of our college and seminary students. They're amazed how many times I will get back to them with a grade and I, you know, I give them feedback and I give them a Grammarly report and they'll have like 10 spelling errors and they're just shocked. Like they just didn't see it, they didn't catch it. Sometimes they spell a word correctly but they didn't use the right word. Like maybe they meant to say there, T-H-E-R-E, but wrote there, T-H-E-I-R. Stuff like this happens. And keep in mind, many of these mistakes are easy to catch and easy to understand what happened. And this is the case with the majority of errors from copies. Robert Raymond writes, copies and versions of the autographs are not directly inspired and may contain errors of various kinds. The discipline of textual criticism has demonstrated that variant readings, mostly of an inconsequential nature, have occurred in textual transmission from one level of copying to another through copyists' unintentional mistakes and intentional efforts to provide aids to the reader's comprehension. And then Douglas Stewart goes on to say that the vast majority of textual divergencies involve an inability to choose between equally plausible and usually synonymous wordings. Simple uh, hypographies, I think that's how you say that, which is losses of words that do not affect the overall meaning of a passage or conflations, adding words from somewhere else in the same book, which are often quite helpful to the sense of the passage. Thus, it would not be correct to suggest that the various ancient versions of the Bible are in hopeless disagreement with one another or that the percentage of textual corruptions is so high as to render questionable large blocks scripture. Rather, it is fair to say that the verses, chapters, and books of the Bible would read largely the same and would leave the same impression with the reader even if one adopted virtually every possible alternative readings to those now serving as the basis for current English translations. In fact, and here's, here's a great point here, absolutely nothing essential to the major doctrines of the Bible would be affected by any reasonable decision in the area of textual criticism. Well, that then leads us to this particular story in this gospel. The simple fact is, is that in some manuscripts, it's not there. And in some manuscripts, it is there. Thus, Calvin writes, it is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches and some conjecture that it, that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But it has always been received by the Latin churches and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage, unquote. 
So because it's found in some manuscripts and not others, others, this is why your Bible may or may not include it. Keep in mind that our Bibles are based, these translations are based on various families of manuscripts. And if you're translating from a family of manuscripts that has a story, you'll include it. If it doesn't have it, you may not include it, or you may go ahead and include it, but make a footnote and say, hey, these other family of manuscripts has it, which is, I think, often the case. And then there are some scholars like D.A. Carson who doesn't believe this story was originally in the Gospel of John, but yet he still believes that the story took place. So that's just a very quick summary of why that's going on in your Bible, possibly, depending on which one you have. And I simply go with Calvin on this and argue that because this story is found in many old Greek manuscripts, and since it contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there's no reason to refuse it. Now, I realize that may raise a ton of questions for you, and if you want to talk about those at some point, that's fine. But now I just want to get into the story. So enough of that, right? <laughs> so, what is this story about? Sadly, this story is very well known and often quoted, but many times, at least in my experience, if not most of the time, it's quoted for the wrong reasons. It seems that most of the time this story is appealed to because it is argued that by Jesus' actions and words here, or you may say his inaction in putting the woman to death, that Jesus is showing that the law is no longer binding upon us today. The antinomians, that is, those that are anti-law, these folks love to talk about this story. In a similar fashion, there are those who love to quote this story because, according to them, it teaches that we should never pass judgment on anybody. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, when you're making a, you know, an assessment, a judgment of someone, someone comes along and says, Well, oh, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You know, stop making assessments, stop judging. A person can murder a child in cold blood. And folks cry out for the death penalty, for justice, and you'll have people object to it and say, nope, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. There are many professing Christians who use this text this way, and there are even many unbelievers, including atheists, who appeal to this story that way. Atheists will often quote these words to reveal the supposed hypocrisy of Christians who make judgments on things. But is that what this story is really about? Is it about Jesus doing away with the law? Is it about Jesus teaching us that it is never appropriate to make judgments on people? Well, I think a careful, considerate look at the story reveals otherwise. So let's take a look. The story begins by telling us that after the encounters we read there at the end of chapter 7, it says they each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. If you recall, there was once a scribe that came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So when others left to go to their own house, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. He doesn't have a house. And then verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now notice now that Jesus is in the temple. 
That's where this story takes place. And I think it's important to consider that, given the fact that we read at one point that Jesus will bend down and write with his finger on the ground. One of the most asked questions of this story is, what did Jesus write on the ground? There's been a ton of speculation over that question. I remember the first time I heard this story, some probably close to 30 years now, as a young Christian, heard this story and picturing my mind that Jesus stooping down and writing in the dirt something and was wondering, man, what did he write? Did he write a verse? Did he write their names? Even R.C. Sproul speculated that he wrote down the word embezzlers, and then one by one, he wrote down the names of the women with whom these men had had affairs with. Yet, notice, Jesus is in the temple. He's not out there in the lawn, writing stuff in the dirt. He's in the temple, where there is not going to be a thick layer of dirt to write on. So, just keep that in mind as we continue with this story. While he sat down and taught them, verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the, in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? Now, there's a few observations we can make at this point. First, the first thing I want to point out is that the scribes and the Pharisees were in fact correct that the punishment for adultery is death. Listen to Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then in Deuteronomy 22, we read this. It's a little bit more extended. It says, If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife, and he may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in a young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones." because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And if a man is found lying with the, man, or the, the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now, there are those who argue that the death penalty for adultery was unique to the law of Moses into the theocracy of Israel. But I want you to consider this. Long before Moses and the nation of Israel existed, we read about Abraham and his wife Sarah and their encounter with Abimelech. 
king of Gerar. And I want you to listen to what took place in that story. It says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and so that you will pray, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have you sinned against and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me my in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, he said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gave them Abraham, and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. But notice in that story, Abimelech, <clears throat> who did not know that Sarah was married, took her to be his, and God threatened Abimelech with the death penalty for taking another man's wife. Of course, God did not go through with it because Abimelech was innocent. But the point here is that the death penalty for adultery is seen long before Moses and the theocracy were in place. And so the argument that the death penalty for adultery was restricted to Moses and the theocracy, I believe, is an error. And it's an error often embraced by those who would try to use this story to argue that Jesus was doing away with the law because supposedly this law was coming to an end. And of course, the theocracy of Israel did in fact eventually come to an end. But again, I don't think that is the point of this story at all. And the fact that the penalty preceded Moses and the theocracy not only has ramifications for how we read this story, it should guard us, it also has legal ramifications for us today, but that's another sermon. Suffice it to say for now, the scribes and the Pharisees were correct on this point. But then secondly, I want you to notice this. Verses 3 and 4 state that, quote, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Do you notice anything strange here? Do you notice someone's missing from the story? What did we just hear from the law? Leviticus. If a man commits adultery with his wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer 
the man and the adulterer shall surely be put to death. And then in Deuteronomy, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Where's the guy in this story? He's not there. Where is he? Was he raptured? They didn't bring him. Now, in verse 6, John tells us why the scribes and Pharisees brought this woman. But before you even get to that verse, the fact that they did not bring the man ought to raise some serious questions in your mind. Is this a setup? Did they release the man because he was, maybe he was an honorable, respectable man in the community and they didn't want to cover up for him? Maybe he was one of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, ultimately, we don't know because the story doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that the law required that both the man and the woman be brought forth. And they did not follow the procedure. And thus, that raises a major red flag as to what these guys are up to. Something's not right. It doesn't appear that these men are truly concerned about this woman or about the law. They're up to something else. And beloved, I think there's something valuable we can learn here at this point. Oftentimes, people will come to you with a Bible in hand, quoting this verse and quoting that verse, pretending to be concerned for doctrinal integrity, when in reality, they have some other agenda going on. So be careful. Be careful of others, and be careful that you don't find yourself doing that to others. And then the third thing I want to point out from verses 3 and 4 is that notice who they bring the woman to. They bring the woman to Jesus. Well, why are they bringing her to Jesus? Jesus was not a civil magistrate. In fact, if you recall... In Luke chapter 12, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus, at this stage in history, had not come to act as a civil magistrate to render civil judgments. So why then are they bringing this woman to him? Everything about what they're doing stinks. If you're paying close attention and thinking critically about their actions, red flags ought to be popping up everywhere. These men who supposedly are champions of the law of God are not actually following the lawful procedures carefully. And they didn't bring the man. They bring the woman, they drag her out, but then they bring her to someone who's not even in the position to deal with this civil matter as a civil magistrate. Again, these men clearly have something sinister going on, and I think Jesus picked up on that immediately. And this is now confirmed for us in verse 6, where it says, This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. There it is. 
Our suspicions have been confirmed. These men don't care about the law of God. They didn't care about this woman. They didn't care about social justice. This was all a setup to trap Jesus and to bring a charge against him. And again, beloved, at this point, I, I caution you to be very careful with people. We have many professing believers today who will come at you with a Bible in their hand and scream social justice, reparations, and all the rest of it. Not because they're truly concerned about righteousness and the law of God, but because they're trying to trap you. And you know they're not genuine because they get very selective about which parts of the Bible they want to quote. And even with the parts they do, they don't even follow the protocol carefully. Don't buy into that emotionalism. You need to slow down, stop, and think very carefully about what a lot of these people are doing with their Bibles when they come to you. And now I want you to notice Jesus' response. I said that I believe he picked up on their nonsense immediately. Now look at how he responds. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, a few observations here. First, remember what I said earlier. Jesus is not out in the lawn. He's not standing in a thick layer of dirt. He's in the temple. And so when it comes to this question about what he wrote, I don't think he wrote anything down. Or if he did, he didn't really intend for them to see, it didn't matter. There was no layer of dirt here. I think he just simply got down to the floor of the temple and was like, guys, there's such a waste of time. He's shutting them off. He's ignoring their big crisis and their supposed concern for the law. He knows they're frauds. And so he's just sitting on the ground, doodling on the floor, acting like they're not there. They don't matter. It's just like when someone may be trying to get in your face about something and you know it's baloney. So you pull your phone out and start playing Angry Birds or something. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You're gesturing to them. I can't take you seriously. I think that's all that's going on here. I think that's it. There's no need to get into all these speculations about what Jesus is doing or what he supposedly wrote. Now, even, Calvin, even though Calvin doesn't bring up the fact that he's in the temple, which I think is important, Calvin does nonetheless say this, and I think he's right. He says, by this attitude, he intended to show that he despised them. Those who conjecture that he wrote this or the other thing, in my opinion, do, do not understand his meaning. Nor do I approve of the ingenuity of Augustine. Ingenuity, there we go. Get it out eventually. Of Augustine, who thinks that in this manner, the distinction between the law and the gospel is pointed out because Christ did not write on tablets of stone, but on man who is dust and earth. For Christ rather intended by doing nothing to show how unworthy they were of being heard. Just as if any person, while another was speaking to him, were to draw lines on the wall or turn his back 
or to show by any other sign that he was not attending to what was said. And thus in the present day, when Satan attempts by various methods to draw us aside from the right way of teaching, we ought to dis disdainfully to pass by many things which he holds out to us. In other words, don't waste your time. Think carefully, think critically. And when you notice the nonsense, when you notice the agenda, don't waste any more time with it. I think that's the lesson many of us need to learn. I'm, not, I'm preaching to myself here. I have to remind myself this constantly when I'm on Facebook. And then secondly, while Jesus does nothing in stooping down and writing on the floor, he does eventually stand up and say to them this, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this verse is often quoted by people to argue that we are never in a position to pass judgment on somebody. But again, I want you to think carefully about such a suggestion. That would be absolutely absurd. Are we really to believe that Jesus here is saying that no matter what anybody does, no matter how bad of a crime, no matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone teaches, you should never pass judgment on people because you sin. I mean, folks, think about it. We live in a society today, even with laws and law enforcement in place, can get pretty messy and dangerous. Imagine if we dropped all laws and all law enforcement. This country wouldn't last a week. It would be absolute hell on earth. Do you really think that's what Jesus is telling us to do? People just rattle off these things without thinking about what they're saying or the implications of it. And oftentimes we do it out of emotion and guilt. Jesus was not doing away with the law here. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite. He was upholding the law. The law rightfully understood and rightfully applied. When he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, notice that he's actually affirming the law. He doesn't dismiss it. He didn't say to them, well, wait a second. We don't, we're not going to stone her because that law doesn't apply anymore. It's not what he said. Instead, he says, okay, stone her. But let him who is without sin be the first to throw the rocks. He can't be saying, hey, since we're all sinners, we can never punish wrongdoing. Because that's not only absurd, it blatantly contradicts places in Scripture where, where we are told to discipline whether it be as parents or church officers or civil magistrates. Take Romans 13, for example. There Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and, the, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul didn't say, hey, we can't have governing authorities because everybody's got sin in their life. Is Jesus now flat out contradicting 
that by suggesting that no one, even governing authorities, can exercise discipline? Of course not. It's absurd on the very face of it. So what is he saying? Well, I think he's saying this. Yes, let's uphold the law faithfully and rightfully. Now, if there's anyone here who thinks that in, by dragging this woman out in the way that you did to someone who's not even a civil magistrate and you leave behind the man, you didn't bring him, if there's anyone here who thinks that they have kept this law, kept the protocol, kept the procedures exactly as according to what is written, then go ahead, start throwing the rocks. And if you think you are without sin, that is, you have kept this law perfectly in its sanctions, in its protocol, in its procedures, then proceed. But when they heard it, verse 9, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. He called their bluff. He exposed their agenda. The scribes and the Pharisees came at Jesus all hyped up and emotional, ready to go, hey, we got this woman in the act of adultery. Let's act. We need to do it. What do you say, Jesus? And they did all that, not because they cared for righteousness, because they cared for the woman, because they cared about the law, rightfully understood. It was all an emotional, hate-filled mob rage to try to trap Jesus. Well, finally, in verses 10 and 11, after Jesus exposes their agenda and they left one by one, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, said no more. Now, when Jesus says to her, I do not condemn you, Notice that he says this in light of the fact that all who had originally tried to condemn her have left and have been exposed. In other words, I don't think Jesus is saying here, hey, I don't think you did anything wrong. Or hey, even though you committed adultery, it's okay now because we don't condemn adultery anymore. We're living under grace and not by the law. In fact, he even tells her from now on, sin no more. Stop sinning. Why would he say that to her if the law no longer applied? Sin is transgression of the law. And yet he's telling her, stop sinning. Stop transgressing the law. Why would he say stop sinning if adultery was now okay? Why would he say that to her if he didn't think she had done it? It appears she, she's guilty. Again, beloved, in my experience... The folks who abuse this story to argue that judgment should never be made usually leave out the fact that Jesus ends the conversation by telling her to stop disobeying the law. Stop sinning. And so I think Jesus' point was this, that because the protocol for such things as should be carried out by the law certainly was not followed, your witnesses were exposed for what they were and they've left, so therefore, neither do I condemn you. Just go your way. It doesn't mean she wasn't guilty. It doesn't mean she didn't sin. Even when we are guilty of sins, crimes, there is a protocol to follow in dealing with those things. And if that can't be followed, 
it needs to be dropped. These scribes and Pharisees revealed their hypocrisy. They revealed their hidden agenda and supposed love for the law by not actually honoring the law as it was stated and attended. And ironically, in light of all the ways this story is abused by the antinomians, we see here that it was actually Jesus who honored and kept the law. The problem here was not the law. The problem here were the scribes and Pharisees trying to act out mob justice without any concern for due process of law. And they did this all as a sinister plot to trap Jesus and now charge him with wrongdoing. And our Messiah saw right through the nonsense. And so in this question of Jesus being the Messiah, his enemies made every attempt they could to expose him as a fraud, only to be caught in exposing themselves for the wicked fraudsters that they were. You know, Jesus will go on immediately to say after this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, if you recall, we heard in the opening prologue of this gospel that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. They tried to overcome the light here in this story of the woman caught in adultery, but they failed miserably and only exposed themselves for the wicked rebels and hypocrites that they were and that we all are apart from the mercy and grace of God. So I close by asking you this, how do you handle his word? How do you handle this gospel? You come to the word in humility and in faith, seeking to sit at Jesus' feet, to learn from him, to be corrected, to be rebuked, to be transformed? Or do you come at him trying to trap God with your ignorance and your silly little games? And even use the Bible to justify it. Well, learn the lesson from this story, beloved. God will not be fooled in the end. Let's pray.